Thank you for downloading the Engineering Commons podcast. In this episode, we talk with Chris Welch about the roles and duties of a chemical engineer. Along the way, we also cover his interest in teaching college classes, brewing beer, and playing in a pipe band. The Engineering Commons explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of field or industry. Join Adam, Brian, Carmen, and Jeff as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 113, Chemical Engineering, July 23rd, 2016. Jeff, have you ever seen a unicorn? You know, I can't say that I have. I've, I've seen illustrations of them, but I, I've never seen a photograph and I've, I've never seen one in person. But that doesn't mean I don't believe. Well, and that's the important thing. I mean, there are unicorn sightings just like Yeti sightings all the time. And I mean, the Yeti is an established fact. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. So I've not seen one, but I believe in them. And I believe in them so strongly that I predict that in this very episode, we are going to talk to a chemical engineer. Well, they don't exist. I, I know you keep saying that, and, and we've had several discussions about this, but I, I believe, I really, really believe. And so I think that if I just believe enough, a chemical engineer will appear on this episode of the Engineering Commons. Don't you have to click your heels three times or something? Well, I'm doing that right now. Just you, okay. you can't see it, can't hear it. But well, uh, I'm going to hold my lucky my lucky monkey paw, and uh, <laughs> and we'll see what happens here. All right. Well, well. So to invoke the right mood, I'm 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 going to say good things about chemical engineers, right? Uh, because somebody has to be in charge of making sure that uh, the right uh, the right chemicals come together and they're mixed in such a way that it's uh, safe, uh, and that, that we have petroleum products and we have plastics, uh, and we have consumer products and we have, uh, water that's, that's, uh, drinkable. And all these things are, are attended to by chemical engineers. And so I know in my childhood, the DuPont commercials, uh, always talked about better living through chemistry. And so I was inspired by that. And I know that chemical engineers make life better. Our guest for this episode is Chris Welch, a chemical engineer from New Brunswick, Canada, who works in the water treatment industry. Chris, welcome to the Engineering Commons. Thanks for having me, guys. <gasps> Hallelujah! It worked! <laughs> Fantastic. And, and uh, Chris, could you confirm that you are a chemical engineer? I, I am a chemical engineer. Fantastic. So are, are you the only chemical engineer that exists or are there more than just the one of you? No, there, there's all kinds of us. Wow. <laughs> just... We should explain the running gag. Because <laughs> <laughs> we're certain, this, I mean, this is awesome, but it's certain to sound kind of creepy, actually. No, all our listeners have listened <laughs> to every episode and keep track of us religiously. Yes. The, the Cliff's Notes, for those who don't, we... Ask for inquiries from uh, all kinds of engineers, and the chemical engineer has been the lone holdout. We could get every other kind of engineer on the show except for a chemical engineer. <laughs> Thus, they are unicorns. We're hanging out with the unicorns. Huh? Yeah. So we're 
we're delighted, Chris, that you could uh, join us for this episode. Uh, and, and I'll ask the same question I ask most of our guests. What got you interested in engineering? Uh, well, that's a long convoluted story. It was, well, uh, we got lots of time. <laughs> I wasn't interested in engineering for a while. So high school, like everybody else, didn't have a clue what I was supposed to be doing with life. But mm-hmm. I had went through a, several uh, transitions in my early four years of university before I found my way to engineering. So there's a little chemistry, some physics, some electrical engineering, but I don't think I ever even went to a class for that. <laughs> but, uh, Nor chased did I. a girl, chased a girl into the business program, and eventually ended up in chemical engineering. Well, that's roundabout. Yeah, that was very roundabout. So, uh, one, one of those uh, deviations took me to a community college where uh, we had instructors that were chemical engineers, and they made it sound a lot more interesting than standing in a lab doing titrations for the rest of my life. So, back to university I went, and uh, four years later, finally got a degree. In chemical engineering. <laughs> Thank you for making that specification. <laughs> so, so the the story that these uh, these engineers told you what what was it about the stories that you found fascinating? Uh, they were just out in the field performing pilot studies and designing processes, and it's just like I said, it sounded a lot more uh, involved and interesting than, than titrations and, and simple lab stuff. That's uh, was kind of on the path or was on the path that I was on. Right. So, uh, yeah, they, they, you know, they talked about their, their times in wastewater and water treatment and pulp mills and oil refineries. And since we have several of those here, it sounded like a, like a pretty good deal. Very interesting. Neat. And, and so I, I take it then the, the fascination with chemical engineering, your move into that field was you already had a, some interest in chemistry. Yeah. Yeah. Chemistry and physics were kind of the, the, the good subjects through high school and math was, was, pretty much there too. But uh, yeah, the chemistry was more interesting than physics. It just did better in physics for some reason. Okay. Did did you think about, you, you mentioned electrical engineering. Did you think about any other engineering fields? Uh, no. My, my, uh, the, the, <laughs> the, the electrical engineering was just kind of a suggestion from an uncle. You know, you're good at math and physics. You might want to try this. So I think, uh, I think that's what I applied for out of high school, but I changed my mind before I even graduated. So okay. it, it didn't stick. <laughs> okay. No offense to the other types of engineers. Right. <laughs> Don't worry, we take it personally. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, one of the things that I'm always interested in, I, I mean, I had a, a good friend who was a chemical engineer in college, and we stayed good friends for ever since. Um, but that was the fascination with chemical engineering. I mean, chemistry, I took advanced chemistry in high school. I took it again in college. It was okay. It didn't. It didn't really inspire me the same way that that uh, electronics and mechanics inspired me. And so I was wondering, you know, you you had this interest in chemistry. Was it what was it in your childhood or your youth that that made that fascination for you? Uh, uh, a few things, I guess. Is just the, the, the city that I live in. There's a, if you drive through town, there's smokestacks everywhere, or stacks. And I guess they don't have smoke coming out of them. According to what we're okay. told, but, uh, you know, there's, there's an oil refinery, pulp mills, paper mills, breweries. There's all, there's all these things happening where you know materials are being processed, and kind of wanted to have a bit of a better understanding of what was going on in these great big buildings or the cloud factories, as the little kids call them. <laughs> so it's, uh, like that's probably where it came from, and, and there was a lot of stuff going on environmentally 
to kind of push me towards chemical engineering. I guess that was kind of the, the, the idea of doing chemical engineering so I could do some environmentally friendly things mm-hmm. versus just uh, yeah. growing vegetables in the backyard. Right. And, and so did you have a chemistry set as a, as a child? No, I probably wouldn't have been allowed to play with it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Just play with the stuff under the sink and yeah, stuff. Yeah, there was lots of that stuff. There was, there's a, you know, definitely some interesting things that got cooked in our house as as, as a result of uh, <laughs> playing with what was under the sink. So, when someone is aspiring to be a chemical engineer, what does the degree coursework look like? I, I mean, I'm I'm pretty familiar with mechanical engineers and electrical engineers do, but I mean, it, it, it's kind of on my map as there be dragons with respect to chemical engineers. Uh, the, the university here in, in town and in, in up the road in Fredericton, they, they pretty much have a common first year program mm-hmm. for all the engineers. Uh, there's, you know, maybe one or two courses out of the, you know, the 10 or 12 that they take that would be different. Um, chemical engineering doesn't usually start until the second year. Then they start with some, some mass and energy balance stuff and they've introduced some uh, second year design classes, but uh, th- they're also taking the chemistry courses along with the chemistry students, organic, physical, and uh, analytical chemistry. And then there's uh, certainly a lot of labs that go along with it. Uh, the engineers take some different labs than the actual chemistry students do, more geared towards uh, the, the the mass production of chemicals versus mm. the you know stuff in a test tube. How to get uh, chemicals from one point to another with a with a pump and a pipe sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. So, so, so more the industrial side as opposed to interesting reactions. Yeah, I mean, like in the chem- the chemistry the chemistry students would take a you know a test tube and pour it into a, another test tube, whereas the the chemical engineers they might have to use a use a pump to to move a larger volume of chemicals into the reactor sort of thing. So they they take some labs with fluid mechanics and. Uh, and things like that, uh, some thermodynamic things with bomb calorimeters, doing some fuel analysis that the chemistry students would never uh, never get into. And, and is it more of a concern? Is it more just the basics of how fluids moved, or is it also, you know, if I if I need to move nitric acid, I can only use these types of pipes or these types of pumps, etc. Or if I need yeah. to move, uh, if I need to move an explosive or a reactive gas, etc. Yeah, there's there's a course in material science as well, and then I think that's in second year up here, and uh, you know that that's where you learn about you know you know you can't use mild steel to transport nitric acid; it won't last very long, and you'll end up with a big mess. So you, you learn a few things like that as well, and then uh, in the third year classes, they get more into the thermodynamics and the uh, fluid particle interactions and heat transfer sort of things, and then on to into numerical methods and uh, process dynamics and controls in the fourth year courses. Hmm. Now my, my friend who was a chemical engineer when he was in school would talk about, uh, well, actually various professors that he wasn't so fond of. Uh, <laughs> and I, that, that may have been the, the, the subjects they were teaching that he wasn't so fond of. I don't know, but he would, he would talk about, you know, peak him and Oak him and, and, uh, what, what in the world was he talking about? Uh, the peak him would be the physical chemistry. So that's the the study of the physical principles that govern the properties of, of different chemicals kind of involves some thermo statistical mechanics and quantum chemistry and then wraps up with a whole pile of kinetics at the end. It's a, it's a little bit mind boggling. 
Mm-hmm. When it's a when it's a second year course and you don't know anything, but uh, <laughs> later on by fourth year it starts to make sense. And that's I don't know. I think the physical chemistry should be taught as a grad course, not a not a second year chemistry course. But the uh, the O Chem is is organic chemistry, and that's just simply you know how how to make benzene and toluene and, and things like that. Some some more basic organic chemicals, oil and, and gas type stuff. Oil and gas type stuff, yeah. And for the uninitiated, organic chemicals are carbon, nitrogen, oxygen. Uh, yeah, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, sulfurs usually. Okay. Mostly carbon. And would ke- sort of important. Would chemical engineers ever? Uh, I guess here, here's a maybe a qualified question for me. Would is there a serious distinction between chemical engineering and say like material science? Like our materials engineer, um, I'm sure there is. I guess I'm looking for a distinction based on things I understand more. Yeah, I, I'm not. I wouldn't be able to give you a very good answer. Okay, I don't think. I, in my understanding of material science is it's it's you know, what materials can be in contact and, like you said, used to transport different chemicals mm-hmm. and uh, how those materials will stand up to uh, you know the working environment. But uh, I know myself, I only took one material science class, and I'm sure that uh, you need a whole lot more than that to be called a, a material science engineer. <laughs> we would hope. <laughs> I would hope there's going to be a lot of stuff blow apart here real soon. <laughs> so what is – is there a design process that is – uh, analogous to maybe how other engineering processes work, uh, you know, like with electrical, you start with a block diagram yeah. and then move on to you know schematic blocks and tying them together. Yeah, there's a they call it kind of call it a, an onion diagram is is what the textbooks refer to it. You usually start with your your chemical reaction and what what conditions you have to have in your reactor to take your raw materials to make your final product. And then you add different layers of the onion. So outside of the, once you've defined your chemical reaction, what your inputs and outputs are going to be, then you got to start with a set of material balances, uh, mass and energy balances to define how how much you want to make, how much or how much you've got to, how much raw material you've got to consume to make how much you want, and how much energy it's going to take, and things like that. And then you you know extra layers go on top of that. your separation system design comes after your mass and energy balances, and then your recycle is another layer of the onion, and eventually you end up with the heat integration, and then all your process dynamics and controls outside of that. So, would you say a very small portion of that is the actual chemistry of you know the base level chemistry of the reaction itself? It's uh, it, it's uh, more the facilitation of. Yeah, I mean, the chemists in the lab—they're coming up with, or the researchers—they're coming up with the, the, you know, the chemical reaction and what's happened with, you know, lab-grade chemicals. Mm-hmm. And then when the chemical engineer gets a hold of it, he might not have—he's not going to have lab purity, say benzene, to work with. He's going to have commodity benzene that was delivered in a in a tanker truck, so it may have different impurities. And he's got to still get this reaction to happen, but also deal with the impurities that might come with the the bulk chemical as well. So there's, you know, some separations that go along with either taking them out ahead of the reaction or dealing with whatever kind of mess the the impurities cause within the reactor itself afterwards. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, my my second year process design students don't find it too interesting. It's 
<laughs> but I like it. Typically, uh, is there a way to like simulate these designs or do like a prototype run, or do you have to jump into production, or does it work like a you know a, a brewery will sometimes have like a five gallon pilot system? Yeah, I mean, there's you know, basically what my students do in their second year classes. They go out and do some research. So they'll, they'll gather some paper based on this reaction and what they think is going to happen, and basically start with a you know a block flow diagram, develop a process flow diagram. But yeah, when, when you're developing this in in industry. There's a pilot scale plants that get built um, outside of the research labs if the if the project seems feasible, and then you can go to like a you know small production capacity plants as well. Um, I haven't been involved with those in quite a while, but uh, in my early days, I did some pilot work with uh, some biological scrubbing reactors, and uh, it was always interesting. But uh, biological scrubbing meaning you use like bacteria to treat the water treat the air we put well it was a, it was a wastewater technology that was converted to a, an air pollution control device okay or it was supposed to be anyway <laughs> it, it didn't pan out and save us all no it it uh, certainly didn't make me millions of dollars <laughs> that's the worst when that happens <laughs> All you want is a little more than your fair share. What's so wrong with that? That's right. Yeah. It would have been great to retire at 25. <laughs> uh, yeah, I got my good. sights set on 35. <laughs> I don't want to be greedy. Come on. <laughs> Both are long gone. Yeah. So I hate to ask you the encyclopedia question, but, uh, you know, the tools for an electrical engineer, your typical DMM, your oscilloscope, your spectrum analyzer, what are the tools of a chemical engineer? Can of gas and a match. <laughs> <laughs> Next question. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I, I know I bought my son a chemistry set here a couple of years ago, and there wasn't much more in it than water and baking soda. It was. Uh, it was uh, you got to find one of those ones from the fifties that had uranium in it. Yeah, a little uranium, some acid. Uh, you know, it, it was hard to find. A, it was hard to find a chemistry experiment for his uh, his uh, grade six project. Because they're not allowed to play with anything. Wow. Oh, you couldn't sneak anything out of the lab? Well, I got a pH meter and some beakers, and that was, that was about all I got. <laughs> everything else was, everything else was uh, pureed fruit and vegetables. <laughs> yeah. There's uh, Could, Couldn't recreate Breaking Bad uh, chemistry for a sixth grade project? <laughs> no, I'm sure he could have retired at 25 if we could have pulled that off. <laughs> Well, it seems to be known chemistry. I'd be more worried about the, you know, the law therapy he's put in after he dissolves a body in the tub for the judges. <laughs> See, there's the problem with the premise of that show. It should have been a chemical engineer and not a chemistry teacher. Yeah, that's right. I mean, he had industry experience. It was his backstory. <laughs> it's still research, but, you know. <laughs> I obviously haven't made it far enough through that show. Oh, thanks, Carmen, for the spoilers. I mean that's revealed in like season one, episode three. I'm rewatching it now. <laughs> it's hardly a spoiler. But uh, if if you wanted to, okay, so you've got a process where you've got non lab grade chemicals going in. How as, in, each, in each step of the process, how do you actually tell what your commercial grade system's doing? How do you measure? Okay, you know. It's I'm making up numbers here. It's ninety percent benzene and ten percent magic. Um, <laughs> how, how how do you know what is actually what are the uh, the 
parasitic byproducts of your reaction? Uh, well, if the guy in the lab's working with the pure products and he's getting no magic coming out the back end, whatever you've got uh, in your you know your pilot scale, it's using the ninety percent benzene and ten percent magic is going to have some different stuff coming out. Mm-hmm on the backside and then you've got to send it back to the chemistry lab for them to figure out what it is. But you've got to first figure out how to separate it from the good stuff. And, and how do you do that? I mean, and, and again, I hate to say the word, I hate to use convoluted terms like magic, but <laughs> you know, it's what, what I find particularly interesting about your discipline is that it's, it deals with mixtures, you know, everything in everything in my discipline deals with physical objects, you know, the only state changes that happen with a semiconductor are it's either working or it's gas. <laughs> and at that point, we're not really concerned as to the chemistry involved anymore. It's what did I do wrong? All right. <laughs> so so it, it, the notion that you can have mixtures of different compounds and, and having to do forensics on what's in there and what's going wrong is very – it seems like it would be very interesting. It can be. It's not something we do every day. Mm-hmm. Um, usually most of the process problems are, are tr- trying to get stuff where it needs to go and uh, at the right temperature and pressure. But uh, when, the, when the mills and the refineries run into problems where their products are off spec, uh, everybody – it's, it's all hands on deck to try and figure out what happened. And, and it's usually something very, very simple and stupid. <laughs> and is it usually pretty obvious, you know, humidity <laughs> getting into the system? Or? Well, yeah, once you find the problem, it's very obvious. But <laughs> oh. <laughs> no, it, it usually takes, it's, you know, there's there's so many different things going on in, in industrial plants that it's 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 very hard to find the needle in a haystack. Just, uh, for example, we've had, uh, you know, at the pulp mill that I work at, they're, uh, they've had a, a dregs settling issue the last three summers. And we still haven't figured out why. We know it's coming and we know how to deal with it, but we don't know yet why it happens. You know, they, they think it might be the new trees coming in or we're picking up something in the yard that somebody's dumping out in the springtime, but uh, really have no idea what the root cause of the problem is. But uh, we've done all kinds of analysis at a lot of expense, but uh, no answers yet. Well, that's interesting. That's not what they call it. <laughs> I mean, I, I suppose it's like any issue I ever have at work. It's really interesting when I'm telling somebody else, but, you know, I'm losing hair every day as a result of it. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, there's a young fellow that runs the department that's not running very well right now, and uh, we keep laughing at him, telling him he's going to turn gray or lose his hair. And <laughs> he's, uh, he's adamant that he's not going to do either one. Ah, <laughs> uh, 20-year-olds. Yeah, I think he's about 25. Yeah, those young kids. Yeah. <laughs> this is a 28-year-old. <laughs> so so I am curious, Chris, you know, I know, you know, mechanical engineers and uh, run, you know, can use uh, various computer programs, uh, either either 3D CAD to, to model systems or, you know, MATLAB to simulate stuff. Uh, you know, the, the electrical engineers have simulation programs like uh, SPICE. Are there similar programs that, Chemical engineers to use to simulate the the activities of the plant. Uh, yeah, not not so much in the pulp and paper industry, but in the petroleum and, and uh, you know, petroleum based chemical industry. There's a uh, Aspen Aspen Plus uh, ChemCAD, I think, is another one. Um, I, I've never used them myself, but I know they're available at the university up the road in Fredericton, and I'm mm-hmm. sure the refinery has copies of it. But uh, mo- most of the stuff that we do 
at the plant level is uh, all Excel based. We'll, we'll develop a model in Excel based on the, the plant conditions and, okay. uh, and go from there. Now, some of the guys are, are familiar with MATLAB and uh, some mini tab statistical type analysis programs, but for the most part, uh, the chemicals, the chemical engineers that I work with are uh, always got our nose stuck in, a, in an Excel book trying to figure out how to do something modeling wise. <laughs> All right. Well, well, Adam will tell you that that is the way to go. Yeah, yeah. Excel is the most important uh, programming language for the engineer. Yeah, I'm, I've got several books above my head here with a VBA that I'm supposed to try and learn how to program in. But it's not happened yet. You guys know there are other programming languages, right, that are much more powerful. <laughs> but they're not all on everybody's desktop. Python yes. can be on anyone's desktop. I'm sorry, I'm not taking it out on you, Chris. Take it more directed towards Adam. <laughs> have, you, you have not dealt with uh, some IT departments, have you? <laughs> no. Yeah. Uh, uh, getting Python interpreter installed on my desktop the first time was a little bit of a challenge. Yeah, I've mentioned that to software engineers I've worked with that it's the assumption that engineers are going to be in, be able to install XYZ program onto their laptops and computers is becoming a uh, poor assumption. Yep. Well, the other advantage of Excel is 90%, well, any graduate of an engineering program should be able to figure out how to tweak it. Yep. Should. Should. <laughs> right. <laughs> Maybe not tweak it to do what they needed to, but. <laughs> right. Right. Well, we'll tell you what, Chris, we'll talk in a minute about uh, uh, your job and, and what you do uh, currently, but can you give us sort of a, an oversight of just sort of the general range of things that a chemical engineer might do in industry? Uh, for the most part, uh, they're, they're in charge of babysitting the process. If they're, they're supposed to notice what's going wrong before it actually goes wrong and uh, try and prevent it. Or get the operations guys to go out and, and do something to make it go away before the uh, before the mill manager sees it. <laughs> right. um, a lot of data analysis, a lot of data evaluation, and uh, troubleshooting, uh, tracing lines to make sure everything's going where it's supposed to go when it and get there when it's supposed to get there. But that's uh, that's about all I really see from the the guys that are employed by by the mill. Mm-hmm. Uh, they go to a lot of meetings and don't get a lot done. <laughs> okay. Okay. Do you, do you guys have to work uh, a lot with thermal management? If I remember correctly from my chemistry class, you know, chemical X plus Y gives you Z plus heat. Yes. And it seems <laughs> like things would be hot all the time. Yeah. A, a lot of processes are, are energy negative, meaning that they require energy, a lot of energy, energy to be inputted. The, uh, the craft pulping industry is actually energy positive. So the, the mill that I work at, uh, spews heat out at an excessive rate. Um, they're, they're, they use once through cooling and they dump 20,000 gallons a minute of 115 degree Fahrenheit water into the river because they have no use for it. Because mm-hmm. the, uh, just because the, the, the reaction that goes, pl- takes place in their digesters is exothermic and they mm-hmm. just can't recover all the heat. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have to do a ton of environmental studies in that case to make sure you're not like heating the river unsafely or, <laughs> you know, changing the oxygen levels? Well, yeah, they do. <laughs> it seems the industry or the uh, the environmental folks around here are more more concerned with uh, putting potable water into the river, which is what they use for their once through cooling, and the uh-huh. levels of chlorine in it versus the uh, the thermal effects on the river. 
but the uh, this mill in particular is based on a tidal river and we're right at the mouth of it so the the temperature might change 20 degrees through the day just because oh, of the tide okay. it's you know the 20,000 gallons a minute that we're dumping out there isn't uh, going to have much of an impact yeah that's true the chlorine will kill the fish though <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to do that no that's not good for the any. people in the plant can drink it but the fish can't swim in it <laughs> <laughs> Haven't they heard the first rule of environmental engineering? The solution to pollution is dilution. Pollution. <laughs> yeah. The environmental uh, department doesn't like to hear that. I thought the first rule was uh, it's not a problem until somebody sues. <laughs> it sounds like when I make fun of our design engineers and they complain about a circuit block, you know, drawing too much power, I say, well, just make all the resistors like 10 times bigger. Then you're, then that's it. Bias currents, carbon bias currents. <laughs> Yeah, that's, you make the resistors bigger, then you draw less current. Problem solved. <laughs> that's the only thing you have to worry about. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, Chris, is is your uh, so you were describing you know doing a lot of analysis work and and uh, trying to be you know notice problems, and I'm wondering if you're uh, you feel like your career is somewhat like that, like a pilot, where most of it's it's pretty routine and pretty boring, and then all of a sudden there are, there are moments of sheer panic as you realize that something has gone wrong. Yeah, the sheer panic happens every day at 7.15 when the emails start coming in. <laughs> oh my. There's, there's always a problem. It's a, there seems to be always be a problem anyway. The, I, I don't know why the phone doesn't ring on Saturday and Sunday. I guess that's when everybody's off and not even paying attention. So, <laughs> But yeah, there, there's a... The the boring days are are uh, very nice. Okay, they're they're, they're a nice treat. <laughs> and from my uh, chemical engineering friend, at least uh, in the the career path he followed, uh, he was involved a lot of times in uh, shutdowns where where you know once you have the process up and running, you want it running for many months, many years, uh, and then when you're going to retrofit or fix or repair, you shut down the process, and then it is. Every minute is critical because you're losing money uh, yep. out of production. And so those were very stressful times for him. Uh, has that been your experience as well? Uh, no, shutdowns are usually pretty easy for me. Um, once okay. Startups are usually more of a problem. Okay. I don't actually, I'm not a mill employee. I'm, I'm a, a supplier to the mill. So gotcha. once things are down, uh, I do my inspections, I clean my tanks, and it's, it's basically a vacation week. <laughs> other, other than that, um, the mill guys, uh, they're there 16, 18 hours a day pushing the maintenance guys to get, get the jobs done so that they can get back up and running because the, the owner's breathing down their neck to, to make them some money. Right. So I, I, I imagine they're very stressed out by the end of a shutdown. Yeah. But uh, the, the, the place, the, the mill that I work at is very well organized and they, they run their shuts very tightly. So they're usually back up and running on time. Maybe not at full production, but uh, they get up and running and everybody gets to go home and have a little sleep. Excellent. But uh, yeah, like I said, it's more of a vacation for me. The startups, that's when my phone starts ringing. If uh, they don't know what's going on with their, their water quality or they can't get the, the, the clarifiers to settle and somebody forgot to turn something on or open a sample line and I got to go in and figure out what they missed. <laughs> right. Usually it's something simple, but three o'clock in the morning, everything's difficult. Absolutely. So, so you've mentioned a couple of things, uh, reactors and, and clarifiers. And, and I remember a little bit of this stuff from my uh, uh, water and wastewater classes I, I had to take in college. 
But I mean, I know those are a couple of the the building blocks, I guess, of processes in chemical engineering. Would you mind just talking a little bit about what those pieces are and, and give some definitions for those that may not be familiar? All right. Uh, a reactor is basically uh, the point in the process where you add together and mix your uh, your reactants, your, the, your raw materials that uh, are going to be used to make your product. And inside that reactor, there may be some kind of uh, some mixing to make sure everything gets all the right molecules get in contact with each other. And there's usually some form of either heating or cooling going on to control the temperature. If it's a, an endothermic reaction, you're going to have to add heat to the materials to keep them reacting. And in the case of an exothermic reaction, you want to apply some cooling so that it doesn't get too hot and blow things up. And then, uh, it's usually a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody likes things when they blow up. Uh, <laughs> so, so, so most reactors are run on a continuous basis. So your materials are fed in on a continuous, uh, at a continuous flow and your products are continu- are theoretically perfectly mixed and your end products come out on the, on the backside of it on, on a, on a similar continuous basis. Um, specialty chemicals are, are more of a batch reactor process where everything's dumped in. The, uh, the reactor's closed up. You stir it up for a while. You let the reaction happen. Then you shut it down again and take your products out and carry out your separations on, on the batch. Um, that's basically a reactor. Or what goes on in there. And uh, beyond the reactor, you usually most of your process involves storage transportation or the separation of your desired products from your impurities the things that you don't want in there um, so like in the craft pulping process the the pulp mill wants to keep the fiber and they they go through a set of uh, filtration steps and cleanings to clean to wash off the the chemical liquor and it goes in one direction and the, the pulp fiber goes towards the uh, the bleachery in the finishing room to make the end product which is a tissue paper and then the liquor in the in our process gets recycled and goes through several concentration steps where the water is evaporated out of it and the eventually the organic fraction that's been dissolved out of the wood is used as a fuel source in the recovery boiler to regenerate the uh, the cooking chemicals and they they take the uh, they gain the heat energy out of burning the organic fraction of the wood that uh, has been dissolved and some of those uh, impurities that are generated in the, in the liquor are what we separate out in those clarifiers that I mentioned earlier as dregs, which is a, a waste material basically made up of unburnt carbon and uh, some iron that uh, has been removed from the from the trees. And the reactor, is it a continuous flow uh, reaction or is it a batch reaction? Uh, interestingly enough, the, the mill just uh, at the end of March – commissioned a continuous digester which is their pulp reactor so that's been up and running for about three months now prior to that they ran uh, 13 batch digesters to uh, produce their 1100 tons a day for a pulp so the, the new continuous process will eventually allow them to go to 1500 tons per day so it's the it's the industry standard now for a, con- a continuous digester is and uh, the batch technology is kind of going by the wayside but you've, does that mean you have to solve for as you have linear movement of the fluid through the reactor, you have to know the reactions are done to a certain level by this point, or is it yeah. sim- is it more simple than that? No, that's basically about it. They they, they the the pulp mill 
uses several different species of wood, so they have to push the wood through the digester at a certain rate under certain uh, temperature and pressure conditions with certain amounts of cooking liquor to get the end product that they want out of those different species. And as they're transitioning from one species to another, there's there's some mush, I guess, that uh, they try and sell in the open market to uh, less uh, less scrutinizing customers, <laughs> I guess. It's probably the best way to put it. It's all market-grade pulp. Some of it, uh, they keep the good stuff for themselves, for their own mills, and, and try to push the other stuff off in the market, I guess. But, uh, yeah, the, the def- there's definitely some considerations that uh, – they 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 look at for the different species of of wood and you know in regards to time and chemistry in that uh, continuous digester. So you said fifteen hundred tons a day. Yeah, that's the eventual goal. Once the rest of the mills upgraded to uh, to keep up with the digester, they'll be running about fifteen hundred tons of uh, dry pulp per day. Okay, so so uh, when it's in the fluid state, just what kind of flow rates are we talking about? <laughs> Uh, I know the digester takes about 800 gallons a minute of cooking liquor. Jeez. And uh, I don't know <laughs> wow. what that, I, I don't know what the application rate is. I, I don't have that off the top of my head. How much chips that 800 gallons a minute is used to to cook? Wow. But I know that there's the the uh, 1500 tons per day would uh, be the equivalent of about 50 percent of the wood that went into the mill. So for every 50, for every ton that goes out as pulp, two tons of wood had to come in. Hmm. What sort of a pump do you use for 800 gallons per minute? <laughs> a big one. It's not a high-pressure pump, so they're just really large centrifugal pumps. The, the high-pressure stuff on the boilers, they're, they're multi-stage pumps. Interesting. Well, so you've, you've mentioned uh, uh, several times working within the wood pulp area and the, uh, the water treatment industry. I, am, I, am I correct in saying that you are currently working in the water treatment industry? Yeah, my, my primary focus within the pulp mill is the, uh, the water chemistry around the, the recovery and the power boilers mm-hmm. and the, uh, the raw water demineralization process. So I'm, okay. not, uh, I'm not heavily involved on the process side of things, but, uh, you know, the the recovery department encompasses the liquor recovery process of the mill as well. So the water, I mean, my office is in the water lab. The liquor lab's about twenty feet away, so I'm I'm, uh, I'm familiar with that as well. We got a couple products there, but okay. uh, my major focus and what I get my knuckles wrapped on is if the the water pH or conductivity's a little out of whack. Right. It's, so clean water coming in, not the dirty water going out. Yes, the or clean both. water coming in, and we got to make it cleaner for the, the high pressure boilers. Okay. So basically, the, the higher the higher your boiler pressure, the cleaner your water going into it's got to be to keep it from corroding or scaling up. Okay. And, and so, how did you end up in the water treatment industry? Well, you, you you come out of college, you've got a a degree in chemical engineering. How, how do you end up in this job? <laughs> it was the only job available. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You can't uh, fight fate. No, uh, there, there wasn't a whole lot of jobs going around. And uh, when I came home from grad school, it was uh, it was about an eight month process to try and secure this one. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, it was a uh, my, my initial goals were to get into air pollution control, but there wasn't a whole lot of that going on. So the the water job came up, and uh, I thought I'd give it a try. And I'm 
16 years later still here. <laughs> it's been, been, been right. a, it's been an interesting ride. Right. So, so I note that you are, I believe you're an account engineer. That's your title. Uh, what does an account engineer do? Uh, it's, it's basically a sales role with, for my, the company that I work for is a uh, Nalco mm-hmm. and, uh, we provide specialty chemicals for the, the boilers and some process stuff as well. But, uh, as an account engineer or, or a salesperson, uh, I'm there to be part of the customer's management team and, uh, I primarily act as a consultant. And if we have something that uh, can solve a problem that they're having to sell it to them, right. Basically. And then make sure the tanks don't run empty. That's a big part. Right. So is there a, a, for your company, is there an office there or are you just plant there near the plant to service that uh, client? Uh, in, in this industry, there, there's, uh, there's two mills in town owned by the same owner. And we've got, uh, we've got three bodies here with Nalco servicing those two mills. Okay. So my primary responsibility is the craft mill on one side of town, and we've got two full-time guys at the uh, the thermomechanical mill on the other side of town. Mm-hmm. So we're basically – our offices are within the mill, and our job is to be there and keep our customers happy. So there's other people in the industry that are primarily salespeople, and they'll go out and knock on doors where we don't have business or are trying to gain business. Mm-hmm. When they gain something, they leave behind basically a technician – or a, you know a lord, uh, I don't know, somebody more technically based to babysit the account while they go out and sell something else and make themselves right. some more money, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. But but this must have been. I mean, this must be pretty steady if you've been in this position for sixteen years. Uh, I, I moved up from the technician position when I first started. I was a, I was a, a service rep, and uh, okay. The, the mills and our customers here in St. John are very service oriented. So there's not a whole lot of. Uh, sales growth outside of our accounts. It's all internal growth. Sure. So we don't have to, I don't have to travel a whole lot, which is works fine for me. <laughs> um, some of the other guys, they, they like doing the traveling and they're, they're better off being salesmen than uh, service reps. Right. So I, I also note that you have a PE license yep. and I'm just curious about what that process looks like in Canada. Uh, in Canada, it's, it's called a PNG license. Uh, we just use the NG on the end of it. Uh, I'm not okay. really sure why, but it's a little different from, from the States. But I'm sure the process is pretty much the same. Um, basically, the, the initial requirement is you have to have an, either an undergraduate degree in engineering or geoscience from an accredited university, or you have to write a set of exams as uh, indicated by a board of examiner, examiners. So if you've had a pile of work experience in in industry and and worked with engineers, they might allow you to uh, to write certain set of exams, like you know, heat transfer, mass transfer, or something like that, mm-hmm. and uh, become eligible to get your your engineering license. But uh, beyond that, you've got to write a professional practice exam, which is basically law and ethics, and have uh, four years of supervised work experience coming out of school. Okay. And uh, all that's, that the, your four years of experience have to be signed off or, or mentored by a, a PNG or a PGO, which is a geoscientist. And uh, once you've got all that in order, you can apply for your engineering license. But okay. you have to, uh, you have to, you have to be registered. 
So once okay. you graduate, you fill out a form, and, you, and you, as long as you stay in the province, you don't have to uh, do a whole lot other than get your work experience under under an engineer. Sure. And are there, because you have this industry in in the area, are there a number of licensed engineers that are also chemical engineers? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know the exact number, but uh, yeah, there's a. Well, I can probably find that out here if you can come up with something else to talk about for a couple minutes. <laughs> so I know there's a there's a salary survey they do every year. They can tell you how many registered chemical engineers there are in the, in the province, but okay, it take me a minute to find it. Well, it's fine. I was just I was just curious whether it was at all difficult to find other engineers that were uh, also chemical engineers. But we, I mean, we've joked about how rare it is to find, you know, how much difficulty we've had in getting a chemical engineer to come on and talk to us uh, on this podcast. Uh, but I didn't know whether just because of the industry, uh, there is an abundant number of chemical engineers in the area that, that could supervise your work and, and, and provide that reference for your uh, professional license. Yeah, as long as you've got a job within industry or within a consulting firm, yeah, there, there's definitely plenty of chemical engineers around here that uh, that have done it. Okay. Um, I, I, when I got out of school, we only had to have two years, and I don't. Yeah, I, I was in Ontario when I got mine, but there was no issue with uh, with getting an engineer to sign off on it as long as you've worked for them. Okay. Fantastic. Or with them, I guess. But sure. there's a there's a set of rules that you have to have to follow and, and keep a logbook of what. Uh, what you've done. Am I correct that it's pretty common for, for engineers to be registered in Canada? I mean, in the States outside of certain disciplines, it's somewhat rare. Um, I, I, I've never let mine lapse, but I know my, my manager, he's never had his PNG and, uh, has no interest in getting it. But, uh, some places require you to have your license because it's, uh, you know, there's certain requirements on, on continuous education that you have to meet in order to maintain your license. So you have to, if, if you don't practice in, as an engineer or don't continue your education, they'll, they'll uh, not allow you to practice as, a, as an engineer. Mm-hmm. There, was a, there was a case in the newspaper here a few weeks ago about somebody who claimed to have had a, a, an engineering license and uh, it turned out he didn't and he was uh yeah i think he works at walmart now wow yeah that happens from time to time so uh you mentioned earlier some uh, assignments that you give to students so uh, that must mean that you teach engineering classes at a, a local university yeah there's a small uh, satellite campus here in st john for the university of new brunswick and uh, about seven or eight years ago i uh, a friend of mine who was happened to be the uh the chair of the department out there was, was looking for somebody to uh, help with one of their design courses that they taught via video conference from the Fredericton campus. Mm-hmm. So I got involved then and uh, helped out for a couple of years. And then I uh, just, I took it over. So I, I teach the uh, <laughs> process design class here directly to the students without the, uh, without the interference from Fredericton. Okay. <laughs> so it's a, uh, it led to a couple other courses down the road, but the design class is the only one I'm doing right now. Okay. Well, and the fact that you, you grew your involvement means that you must enjoy the process. Yeah. It's a whole lot better than being on call 24 seven at the mill. <laughs> right. 
you know, the problem there, the student emails don't stop coming, but you can at least turn turn those off. There's nothing critical going on when they can't uh, solve their mass balances. Mm-hmm. Can you throw the students out with the wastewater if they get too troublesome? No, they're usually bigger than me. <laughs> <laughs> That's a shame. <laughs> I got a question, sort of completely random for what we've been talking about. Um, do you tend to, as a chemical engineer, favor some reactions over uh, others? Like, you know, mixing like sodium and water is kind of dangerous. So would you avoid that if you could, uh, uh, if it was part of a chemical process? Uh, well, sodium is usually combined with something else, usually like a, as a sodium chloride or some kind of salt. But uh, I've, I've never had to deal with pure sodium. Um, I don't think I'd want to because it does explode when you get it wet. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, that, that was just the example I pulled yeah. out of thin air. But, you know, are there certain reactions because they give off some, you know, sort of toxic gas or what have you that you, you just don't want to use? Or there's usually another way around it. So you don't have to worry about that. Like you said, with salt and sodium. Yeah. You, usually, you know, people are going to find the safest way to combine two two chemicals. That's part of the process design process. Um, or the chemical process design process is finding the safest way to do things because we don't want anything anything blowing up or anybody getting injured. So you're like an anti-mad scientist. Yeah, anti-mad. Yeah, we don't like the mad stuff. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's just ridiculous. You don't power your chemical process with lightning strikes too? <laughs> no, light, lightning strikes are not good. 1.21 gigawatts. <laughs> I don't know if there's a cable big enough to handle a lightning strike safely. Well, my understanding of chemical engineering is just blown out of the water. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so with your uh, chemical engineering students, then you must have some sense or uh, do you have a sense, I guess would be the better question of uh, what the job market looks like for chemical engineers in Canada? Well, right now, everything's kind of lousy. Okay. The, the oil the maple syrup industry going. Well, that's yeah. The, the, well, there was no real winter in, in New Brunswick here, so there's no no maple syrup down here. But uh, the the oil prices being down certainly put a damper on everything that's going on in Alberta. But uh, that was the only growth region, you know, mm-hmm. for probably any engineering um, segment. But uh, a lot of chemical engineers were were heading west. You know, all, when I was going when I was going through school and, and since. Um, if you're not lucky enough to get on with the, one of the local mills or, or the small refinery that's here, uh, you're, you're pretty much out of luck. You got to go someplace else. Mm-hmm. So they, they, they tend to hire, you know, maybe half a dozen chemical engineers in St. John locally every year between the, the two or three mills and the oil refinery, but everybody else pretty much has to leave and mm-hmm. uh, hopefully find greener pastures. Right. And your mention of uh, the, the, pipelines makes me wonder what can you draw a quick distinction between what a petroleum engineer does and what a chemical engineer does is the, is it just a matter of focus i would believe so yeah the, the, the petroleum engineer is going to be you know solely focused on taking that crude oil and making you know the high end products whereas a chemical engineer is probably a little more rounded maybe with the, okay. in, in regards to you know you can probably go work in a in a mine in an ore processing facility in a mill just as easily as he could in a uh, in an ore refinery, he may not be directly involved with the uh, the breaking down of the crude into the various fractions, but he's going to have some kind of a 
a role to play downstream with the separations or the, you know, the wastewaters or the ancillary processes with the acids and caustics that they use to, uh, to make those, uh, to get the gas out of the, out of the oil. Sure. Yeah. I, I note that, uh, uh, here in the U S the Bureau of Labor Statistics, uh, predicts a growth of, uh, 2% in the number of chemical engineering jobs, uh, between, well, their dates were from 2014 to 2024. So that's a little under the, the economy as a whole. Is that supplier demand driven? I have, I have no idea. Meaning, I guess for those, for those listeners who didn't take economics, there's a finite supply of the number of graduates coming out. So, you know, if they predict a 4% increase and they're only graduating a 2% increase, it's going to be difficult to find the extra 2%. Mm-hmm. Cloning. <laughs> you have to hire some unicorns. Mm-hmm. Well, so Chris, I, I uh, know that in your, uh, in your spare time, when you're not doing the, uh, the chemical engineering that you enjoy something that we've talked about several times on amongst ourselves on this podcast. And that is brewing beer. Yes. So does your, does your chemical engineering background make you just a fantastic beer brewer by, by just nature? It is just <laughs> second nature to you or, or do you struggle trying to get the, uh, the beer to turn out consistently like the rest of us that try to brew our own beer? Well, I, I don't, uh, Consistency isn't a problem is as long as you get your if you do the same thing every time. But uh, the quality I've only had one batch go down the drain <laughs> ever. So that was uh, oh. I think I did all right there. But it, unfortunately, it was my first solo semi professional brew that went down the drain and not one of my home brews. So yeah, bet men there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, first time they left me alone. So. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, the distinction here between the home brewing you've done and this semi-professional? Yeah, the uh, when when I was in grad school, I was uh, away in a, in a different part of the country where there was significantly larger selections of beer styles on the shelf. Mm-hmm. So when I came home, I started uh, researching and, and started putting my home brewery together. So about five years into that, um, there was a, a local brew pub that was up for sale here. And a few of us got together and, and thought about buying it. And part of that group was one of the bar owners or the the bartender and the brewmaster of the existing brew pub. So that didn't uh, didn't pan out. But eventually, those other two got together and opened up this uh, this other brew pub. So one day, I just went in and said, "Hey, if you want some help, I'm interested." And uh, the rest was history. So I did that <laughs> for a few years, but the things got a little too busy trying to work. A full-time job, a part-time job, and brew every Tuesday night was a uh, was a little too much for the family. So something had to go. So I'm back to home brewing now. I pulled my stuff out of the garage, and I've got my uh, I've got my second uh, rebirth batch in in the fermenter right now. <laughs> what, what type of beers in the refermenter now? It's a it's it's a black IPA. Oh, I love those. Yeah, I've uh, I've kind of fallen in love with them here the last year. There's a, there's a couple that are brewed nearby that are quite tasty. Yeah. Did you did you try to clone a specific beer or is this your own recipe? Uh, it's a, a bit of both. It's I started with a basic recipe and uh, I had to I had to, a beer probably last fall that was made with a certain type of hop, a mosaic hop, mm-hmm. and I, I, I kind of went a little nuts with the mosaic because I quite liked it. So. <laughs> 
So, yeah, it is the hop du jour these days. It, it's, it's very nice. So it's a, it's, there's a whole lot of Cascade and, and Mosaic that got thrown in there. Nice. You were able to find Mosaic. Yeah, I had a hard time. I had to buy it from a place out in California, but I got it. Not much. I think I only got a whole pound. Yeah, still, still well, enough. It's, it's enough for now. <laughs> yeah, give it five years still. Uh, something new is the new, uh, the new in hop, like happened with, yeah. uh, I don't know how many others, Amarillo and Simcoe. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's always a, the hop of the day, I guess. Fortunately, I like Belgian beers and, and all the spices that go in those, so I can use pretty much any hop with those. Way more hop stable, <laughs> right? And and are so are microbreweries popping up in your region as quickly as they seem to be here in the uh, the Midwest United States? Uh, not as quickly. I think Canadians are a little more slow to get business, to, to jump into a new business venture. But uh, yeah, there's several more breweries here in New York than there were when I came home 15 years ago. There's right. uh, every time I go into the into the beer store, there's a there's another. Uh, craft beer on the uh, on the shelf with a New Brunswick label on it so it's uh, it's good they're popping up in small communities pretty much everywhere yeah so there's even uh, there's been two uh, one brewery from Fredericton up the road it just expanded into St. John with a small brew pub uptown and there's a uh, another one set to open in the next couple of months out you know 15 minutes outside the city and uh one fellow that used to brew with us at the pub, he's uh, he's got a, a setup in his basement, and he's 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 brewing three times a day, trying to keep up with his demand. So he'll be expanding soon as well. Wow! So and and so, uh, in addition to all these other interests, uh, I understand you also were involved with uh, some local pipe bands. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's uh, that's been a long time hobby. So I started that when I was about twelve. Okay. So, well, you you need to explain first what a pipe band is. And then your then your involvement with it. <laughs> All right, it's a, it's a it's a bunch of guys and and women wrapped up in in wool kilts playing bagpipes and drums, and uh, we seem to play at the on the hottest days of the summer in, <laughs> in parades so in competitions. So they always seem to it's either pouring rain or hot as Hades. Sounds hardcore. Uh, there's a lot of beer drinking that goes on afterwards, so it's uh, <laughs> there's, there's there's a reward at the end of it. That's all that matters then. Afterwards. Well, sometimes during. The Pipers I know must be doing this the wrong way around. Or no, they're doing it the right way around. <laughs> they, they, get the, they get the hats after. with the beer cans on them? Uh, 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 not that far. Uh, but there was an ongoing joke about how you tune a Piper. Or you don't tune a pipe, you tune <laughs> Shoot a Piper. <laughs> yeah, if they could figure out how to tune a set of bagpipes, we'd be laughing. <laughs> well, it's it's um, the amount of whiskey that you give them before they start piping. <laughs> I think you need to give it to the audience, and you don't have to tune them near as long. <laughs> that sounds like a way better idea. Huh, I wish I'd have thought about yeah. that uh, about five years ago. <laughs> so, uh, you're playing a bagpipe? No, I'm a drummer. A drummer, okay. No, I get to stand around a lot and listen to them tune. And and uh, are there are there a lot of pipe bands in in your area? Uh, my understanding, there's more pipe bands in North America than there are in Scotland, where the whole sport, if you know, originated. Okay, but in town here, there's there's really only one main pipe band, and there's a couple little struggling ones. But uh, 
There's a couple more up the road in Fredericton, down in Nova Scotia. About four hour drive from here. There's probably ten in Nova Scotia, but uh, Ontario has quite a quite a few of them. And uh, out in Alberta and BC, there's there's quite a few. Okay. And, and so, what does a competition look like? Are you, are you judged on how well you play the music? Uh, yeah, I mean, we can. Uh, there's usually two piping judges, a drumming judge, and uh, an ensemble judge. Mm-hmm. Ensemble being how the drum section and the the pipe section work together, mm-hmm. and they're judged on. There's there's different uh, levels of playing in North America. There's five uh, five band grades, five through one. Five being your entry level, and grade one being the uh, the NHL of pipe bands. So okay. uh, we're a grade four band here now. But there's uh, there's varying levels of expertise w- even within our band. But uh, the, the pipers are judged on how steady they sound. There's mm-hmm. a if they're if they're blowings on and off, or if their drones are wavering, they get uh, they have marks deducted. And then of course the judges are, are listening to make sure that they everybody's playing the same thing at the same time. Same with the drumming. We get uh, primarily judged on uh, how well we play together and the the tone of our drums. And then the uh, the ensemble guys basically uh, make sure the drum corps playing the same music as the pipe section. Make sure everything fits together well. Okay, and and this is done while standing stationary, or this is done while marching, or competitions are done standing still. We march into a circle and then we stand still once we're there. Okay, uh, the parades obviously we have to keep moving, keep or the moving, right? or the fire truck will run over us. <laughs> right. We don't play the difficult stuff when we're playing parades. It's probably a good idea. Keep it simple so you can walk at the same time. <laughs> right. Right. Well, tell you what, Chris, we should uh, we should probably wrap this up and, and let you get going. We certainly appreciate your willingness to uh, spend some time with us this evening and, and uh, share your insights. All right. No problem. I'm glad, you, I'm glad we could find a common time to do this. Indeed. Uh, so, uh, Justin, in uh, closing up, any advice you have for students that are thinking about a career in chemical engineering? Yeah, go find one and uh, ask them what they do. I guess uh, <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of people that probably go into any engineering course and, and don't really have a good idea of what they might end up doing in, the, in their career. They might not, uh, they might not find the, an answer that they like. I know <laughs> going through uh, – the courses in engineering school, it's all design and, uh, you know, you're solving fairly straightforward problems. But once you get out into, into industry, the uh, the problems become much bigger and harder to find answers to. And uh, there's not a lot of design work going on in it unless you're when – you, when you're working in a, in a mill or a refinery, you're pretty much troubleshooting and uh, da- analyzing data. Right. So if those are things that you want to do, you might not want to be a chemical engineer. Right. <laughs> right. And and if someone should uh, want to get a hold of you or, or you know, ask a question or, or gather more information, is there some some place that we can direct them? Yeah, I can use uh, you can use one of my email addresses is fine. Yeah. C uh, C Welch at unb.ca is probably the easiest one. Okay. We will uh, we will add that to the show notes. So if any of our listeners are interested in contacting Chris, they'll have that available. Okay. All right. Well, thank you again for, uh, for spending some time with us. And uh, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so very much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Take it easy, Chris. You guys do. Good night. Bye, Chris. 
The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our musical introduction is by John Trimble and our concluding theme by Paul Stevenson.